0: Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish independent WhatsApp
1: channel. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Hemant Sunim telling us what to do when things don't go your way.
0: When we are, you know, very young and have a first love, and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. So we begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end.
2: As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Nominated for Best Documentary at the upcoming Irish Podcast Awards, this is Tainted Gold, the Michelle Smith story.
3: So the waiting is almost over now. It's up to the starter. Clean start.
4: I train six days a week. I only have one day off. I train six hours a day. All I do is eat, sleep and train. Smith is-
1: I think on some level, I presumed she would fail.
3: I don't think anybody expected what ended up happening. 100 metres to go for the second gold medal for Michelle Smith. Can anyone catch her at this stage? She's 15 metres to go to the turn. I think I was just shocked. I think I was in shock.
0: A
5: swimming middle of any color and they're looking at goal. absolutely look at astonishing astonishing achievement and you know from the moment that happened then you know, the country went absolutely crazy absolutely crazy seven short days in atlanta propelled irish sport in general
3: onto an altogether different plane ireland's greatest olympian michelle smith
0: my name is Kieran Lennon, and you are listening to Tainted Gold, the Michelle Smith story, a three part series that traces her rise and fall, as well as the deep scars that remain to this day. We asked Michelle Smith to contribute to this podcast, but she said she was not available. She has always denied accusations of cheating during her swimming career, and in a recent statement to RTE Radio, she said her Olympic success was a culmination of 17 years of training and dedication to her sport. Before he had introduced Rosso Carol Kelly to South County Dublin, Paul Howard was the chief sports writer for the Sunday Tribune, and he had covered Michelle's career when she was still struggling to make a mark on the international scene.
3: I'd known um, Michelle Smith, I, I, I knew about Michelle Smith and wrote about Michelle Smith um, from the early nineties. Um, I knew she had, she had swum uh, at the, the Seoul Olympics in 88, and then in Barcelona in in 92. And I think I interviewed her twice before in the lead-up to the Barcelona Olympics. I really liked her, you know. She was was really personable and, you know, very ambitious and um, just good, good company. She went to Barcelona and she posted performances that kind of suggested this was the end for her. No one really expected her to be around in Atlanta. And I th- think given her kind of her age profile and didn't expect her to see, to see her swimming internationally at that level again. Michelle didn't get
0: out of her heats in Barcelona and her Olympics passed by with little attention. Her performances generated only a few paragraphs in the Irish Independent underneath stories about Gary O'Toole's disappointments in the pool. However, the 1992 Games wasn't the end for her, but a turning point and Michelle would later write about her first meeting with Eric in her diaries for the Irish Independent.
4: I'd finished my swimming at the 1992 Olympics and went for lunch with this Dutch man who brought his friend, Eric de Bruin along. And we'd had a good time. I thought he was nice. When lunch was finished and we were about to leave, I told myself I better act fast or this one might get away. I took a deep breath and asked, what are you doing tonight?
5: Look... Love at foresight is an old cliche, but anyone who knows them uh, or remembers that time would, would say that.
0: That's Paul Kimmage of the Sunday Independent.
5: You know, it was almost
3: the old classic turnabout. And then it went quiet for a little bit. I mean, it might not have gone quiet, but I certainly wasn't writing much about swimming after the Olympics. And then I remember my... my desk in the Sunday Tribune office was right next to the fax machine and it was really annoying because faxes was, was just come through all day and it was um these are the days before email uh, I remember faxes started coming in started coming in uh, about these performances Michelle Smith was was swimming she went to she went to Holland to live with him um and didn't didn't retire and then you know, just sort of started to stead- not just steadily improve as a swimmer, it was, there were astronomical improvements she was making as a swimmer. And there we were, I was learning about them through these faxes that were coming in. I don't, I can't remember who was sending them, whether it was the Irish Amateur Swimming Association or whether Michelle was sending them herself. But suddenly it was, it was clear that something was happening. You know, she, she, she was becoming Uh, one of the best swimmers in Europe I suppose at that stage and uh, yeah it was it it, it was very unusual Gary O'Toole tells
5: a story about the he was at Barcelona with Michelle obviously and he came home and hadn't didn't see her for uh, over a year until the world short course championships in Palma de Mallorca and he hadn't seen her uh, in over a year and they were in the warm-up pool uh, before the event and he saw her for the first time and he was like, stunned by the change in her physical appearance. She looked so much stronger than he'd remembered her before. And he made a remark to her, uh, he remarked on this to her about, you know, look, Gideon, just, I don't know what you're doing, but, you know, be careful. Now, she denies that conversation happened. Okay. She denies that conversation happened. But that was, that's Gary's remembering of it that uh, he saw her for the first time in over a year and that there was a noted change in her physical appearance.
3: And then, you know, the, 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 the whispers started about Eric, um, that Eric had had a problem with with a drug test in 1993, um, that he had a, a, a raised uh, testosterone to epitestosterone ratio, and that was indicative of, of steroid use, or, or that was indicative of doping.
5: In August, I think it was of 93, uh, Eric gave this t- testosterone p- positive in an event in Cologne. Okay. And what was significant about that, or interesting rather, about that was that Michelle was with him that day. She traveled with him to that event in Cologne. So she saw firsthand uh, what had happened to him and the process. That followed.
3: I remember the time this was kind of dismissed by a lot of people around Swimming and around Michelle Smith as, it, you know, it was a mistake and the Dutch Federation have exonerated him and, you know, uh, that there's nothing to see here. But I didn't, you know, I, 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 I didn't buy that explanation, to be honest. You know, I made some calls and and it, and it wasn't as straightforward as the Dutch Federation have cleared him and that's the end of it, that the IAAF did not accept the Dutch Federation's uh, reason for clearing him and the ban stood. And he was banned from his sport for four years. But this had happened while he and Michelle were sharing were sharing a home together, while they're sharing a bathroom together. You know, all of these things, the rate of improvement at a time when she should have been slowing down, you know, and that kind of relates to the changing shape of the female body as the female body matures. But we just kept hearing about this new training regime she was, uh, you know, she she had un- she had was undergoing in Holland. But the problem then is when the man who's in charge of the, the training regime, you know, the man she called the wind beneath my wings in her book, um, has this... You know, this doping infraction against him, it's just very, very difficult to, to, to bury that. I think she was very much, I would have
0: said under the spell of Eric. That's Vincent Hogan, sports writer for the Irish Independent.
1: That, you know, he was, I don't know if controlling is the description I'd say, but she seemed to look to him after everything she did. The only reassurance she needed was from him. He was a very strong type of personality in, in, in that it was a defiance in him. And uh, it was almost, you know, how dare you question her? But it was very noticeable that, you know, as soon as she'd finish a race or finish a heat, she'd seek, his, she'd seek to make eye contact with him. And then secondly, with her parents who were usually up in the bleachers waving a small tricolor or something. But it was always initially she looked for Eric. Michelle would later write about her training regime with her husband in her diaries
0: for the Irish Independent, although without ever giving much real details away.
4: One thing about Eric is if he decides to do something, he wants to do it properly or not at all. What he found in me was someone who is prepared to do the work and willing to listen and discuss what I was doing with him. To most people, the regime we developed would be an unbearable existence. All I did was swim and train. I train, I eat, I sleep. But you have to understand that I love my swimming and he loves the coaching. We get to live the program all day long. Admittedly, by the time the end comes to our 10-month program, both of us are ready for a break. But during it, we're all caught up in what we're doing. What better way of doing something than doing what you love and doing it with someone you love?
0: Before she raced against Michelle in Atlanta, Marion Limpert had crossed paths with the Irish swimmer several times in the years before, and her physical transformation had not gone unnoticed.
2: I hadn't seen her for a while, and then we were at a World Cup, and she was there with, and I'm trying to think if they were already married, if he we was still her fiancé, her husband or her fiancé at the time. And I noticed that her physical appearance had changed significantly since the last time that I'd seen her. She was a lot more muscular, um, a lot more cut.
3: When she started change, training with Eric, her entire body shape changed. She had big shoulders, like she developed these very, very big shoulders and she changed to power events. She was suddenly swimming, power events, events that, you know, required kind of big arms, really. According
0: to Michelle, her transformation was down to Eric's innovative coaching, which allowed her to reach her full potential. It was a narrative that she would tell the world in Atlanta in 1996.
4: No, I'm not letting anything take away from this joy because, you know, I've really worked
3: so hard. I've put my heart and soul and my whole life into the last three and a half years and I haven't
4: let anything come in my way. I've tried to be as professional as I possibly can and, um, you know, this is is the result of it and nothing's going to spoil that for me.
1: She very much created this idea that all of the coaching she had undergone before Eric was bog standard, ridiculous, and that when he came into her life, he suddenly was able to point out all the nonsense. And again, these very compelling um, descriptions of how much more focused and disciplined dietary-wise, you know, training-wise.
5: I wouldn't have taken any notice of her until uh, the World Championships in Rome in 1994, and that registered because uh, she became the first swimmer to make a world championship final, okay, in, in swimming history in Ireland. No, no no, water swimmer had done that before, had made a world championship final in the 200 meters butterfly. That was never her event. She hadn't competed in a butterfly in an international competition, I, I don't think ever. If you look back in, in Seoul, she'd been... Uh, Preferred events was 400 IM and backstroke. So individual medley and backstroke were there two specialist mm-hmm. events. And here she turns up at a world championship, makes the final in the 200-meter butterfly, which was, you know. And look, I'm going to be honest here. For me, that that I, I wouldn't have understood that at the time. But if you're swimming and you're in the swimming community and you're looking at this, you're thinking, well, what the fuck is going on here?
3: But we were hearing stories about how she was training smart. And this came back uh, during the Atlanta Olympics, that the secret behind it was that she was training a lot smarter than she was, had before. And, but when you asked what training smart meant, it was just very unconvincing. It just didn't add up to the improvements that she was getting. That was what I felt. I, I was dubious about whether all these, things, these changes she'd made were responsible for this improvement in her that was just about unprecedented outside of the communist world.
0: Her big breakthrough on the international scene would come in 1995 when she achieved something no Irish swimmer had ever achieved before.
5: And then she went to uh, Vienna a year later in '95 and won two gold, two golds and a silver at the European Championships. And now she's in like uncharted territory. This is uh, like nobody has gone near this level of performance before. How how this woman? How has she done this? How how did she? How's she achieving these astonishing performances, smashing records left, right, and centre, winning I mean, many Irish records. Have been, I've lost count. But you know we should have been doing that. It was just an easy way out for us to move on. And and hope it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be a story in Atlanta.
0: However, Irish sport and Irish society was also a very different place in 1996. And doping issues in sport were a more foreign concept.
5: The Americans, they were caught on drugs. But no Irish person was ever caught on drugs because no Irish person ever takes drugs. The Americans uh, are not in any position to cast aspersions on people. Michelle's got there by hard work.
1: Yeah, there was a certain smugness about us, definitely. Uh, we, we, we really, you know, certainly in mainstream media, we, we didn't for a second think that that was going to happen with our athletes and obviously no Irish athlete had ever tested positive at the Olympics. I think probably there was an element of we're above that kind of thing
0: in Ireland. During the 1996 Games, while the spotlight was on Michelle in Atlanta, Paul Howard decided to dig deeper into the story of Eric de Bruin, the leading Dutch discus thrower who had undergone his own transformation from track and field athlete into a world-class swimming
3: coach. During the Atlanta Olympics, I realised that Eric was the story. I wasn't in Atlanta for the Olympics. I was working on the desk in the Sunday Tribune. I was second or third in the pecking order as a sports writer at the time. So I was based in Dublin and I was thinking, how, how could I cover the story from, from this part of the world? And <clears throat> I thought the story was Eric. I really did. I thought, you know, we've got somebody in Atlanta covering that side of the story. I need to find out about Eric. And in those days, pre-internet, there was, there was no Googling him. You know, there was, it was very, very difficult to find out about Eric de, de Bruyn's background without going to Holland and talking to people who knew him. So that's what I did in the summer of ninety six. I decided, you know, this is a huge part of the story, his background, because really he was her Achilles heel. His background, his positive dope test uh, was a weak link in the chain. It was the thing that spoiled the fairy, the fairy tale story. Just the one little ugly blemish that just spoiled the fairy tale story. So I went to Holland. And I met a few uh, sports journalists who knew Eric, who'd known him for years and kind of put this picture together uh, of of what he was like. And he had done an interview with a Dutch newspaper called De Grant, either that year or or the year before in which he'd spoken about his attitude towards doping. And uh, yeah, to to say it would be, it was ambivalent was would, would be generous. Um, he talked about how Ben Johnson was the hero of the soul olympics regardless of what he he'd taken and he felt that you know cheating was something that went on in in all aspects of life and you know what what was cheating for one person might not be cheating for another person he felt that sport wasn't a level play, playing field anyway and he said that doping was essentially just a list of substances that you weren't allowed to take so it was it was very interesting but it was the first sort of crack in this facade that had been constructed of the swimmer you know who had who had made this these unlikely improvements and become the greatest swimmer in the world, and you know her, the prince charming standing behind her, who had been wronged by his sport it was this picture was suddenly started to emerge. Um, of Eric de Bruyne is quite a different character to this, um, this this discus and shot putter who'd been unfairly maligned by his sport and driven out of his sport. Um, it was it was far more complicated than that. And we published the story in the Sunday Tribune in between. I, it was actually the, the it, it was the end of the the week when she won all the medals. So it was just so it was kind of it was that Sunday and yeah. It suddenly, suddenly after that piece appeared, it, it kind of felt like Eric was a problem then. But it wasn't just Eric. Michelle faced scrutiny and questions directly.
0: She was celebrated as an Olympic hero on her return to Dublin. But those who had asked questions during the Games were not going to drop the topic now. And for almost two years, they would dig deeper into her story, revealing issues with her availability for drug tests, and pushed her to reveal the secrets of her success. And then, out of nowhere, in April 1998, the news broke that she was facing a charge of tampering with a drug test. Marion Limpert was one of the swimmers who had finished second to Michelle in Atlanta, and the news shocked her.
2: It totally caught me off guard. Um, We were actually preparing for the Commonwealth Games in Malaysia in 98. So we had just, I'm trying to think if we had just come off the meet, and we were getting ready for the camp. Anyway, we were leaving it, and yeah, it came out of nowhere. Like, I just know one of our... our, um, media uh attachés kind of said look okay just so you know you're probably gonna have to do some interviews because this is just broken and I was like what
0: on the morning of January 10th 1998 part-time drug testers Alan K. Guy drove up to the gates of Michelle and Eric's Kilkenny home for an out-of-competition drug test as they had done many times before. Michelle would unlock the gates and return to the house, and when Alan Kay entered to collect the urine sample, Michelle was out of sight. The Olympic champion would say she only disappeared for a minute, but Alan and Kay Guy's report said it was more like five. Either way, they would soon be joined by Eric, and the four of them would wait, until Michelle felt ready to deliver the sample in the downstairs bathroom. Back in the kitchen, the sample was split into two containers and signed off and it was here both testers first noted the whiff of alcohol in the air. Three months later, the bomb would go off in Irish sport, when the Times of London broke the news that Michelle was facing a charge of tampering with the drug test and a possible
1: four-year ban. I think that the tampering, it just, it didn't make any sense. I mean, there were allegations. I I remember the defence of Peter Lennon, her solicitor, they were saying, you know, they were kind of, well... When was it sealed, and, and and all of this, and and you're you're being almost asked to believe that Alan K Guy would have done this, and you're kind of saying, well, that's not
3: believable, that's not credible. I mean, I thought it was, t- I thought it was completely ludicrous, but she had to say something. We spoke to Al Guy for this podcast, but he didn't want to be recorded.
0: He says he'd prefer to leave it all in the past. However, he did say he knew Michelle's legal team would try and target him and his wife Kay in the process of their defence. They had few other options. As a customs and excise officer, he had grown a thick skin. Al has just turned 80, but it's easy to see he had the personality to stand up to the pressure and scrutiny at the time. But the whole episode weighed heavier on his wife Kay.
3: I thought about it many, many times, how much I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that kitchen that day. I mean, because the tension there must have been, you know, and, and then the tampering and there was whiskey in the sample but i went to the i went to the press conference in in heather lennon solicitor's office on the keys on city key it's one of those kind of 10 days you'll always 10 working days you'll always remember from your career because it was it, it just felt like the final reckoning it was it was an it was an extraordinary day a horrible day a tense day and and you could kind of see that she was that you know she was, she was a wreck over this. So it became a case of, for them being
1: legally very clever rather than, in my opinion, addressing, I was in front of all of our noses and, and they were very clever. And she was very strident. I mean, the, the same steel that you saw in her eyes in Atlanta was still there. But did I believe it? No, I, I didn't believe it at that stage. You just knew this doesn't add up this doesn't add up. Like, I mean, it's, it's only in one person's interest to tamper with it, if it needs to be tampered with. Only in one person. So I think the game was up.
0: Vincent Hogan and the Irish Independent had been among those who had backed Michelle in the two years after Atlanta. But given the dramatic events of 1998, that support was becoming unsustainable.
1: And yet the instinct, I suppose, uh, as a journalist maybe is to be Kind of dance around it a bit, you know. When I when I think of you know the editorial I was asked to write, and I think of the big piece I wrote at the time, it was very much trying not to say I me- I messed up, trying not to say I got it wrong. It was kind of broad brush strokes about how sport in general is disease ridden, um, and You know, even at that stage, and that's two years after Atlanta, I I think I I still see a kind of self-serving dishonesty in what I was saying, because at that stage, I didn't believe a word that was coming from Michelle or, or, you know, I I just didn't believe her story at all. Um, And yet, you know, and it's not my proudest time as a journalist. I, I kind of. I couldn't bring myself to say, what was the bleeding obvious you know this stinks the whole thing just stinks
0: on august 6 1998 she was officially hit with a 4 year ban by fina swimming's governing body for tampering with the sample it was 2 years to the day since michelle returned to dublin as a hero she had few people in her corner now but she wasn't ready to give up the fight she denied any involvement in the tampering case or any sort of cheating and was determined to clear her name at the Court of Arbitration for Sport.
4: On my life, I swear that I am innocent.
0: August 7th, 1998. Front page of the Irish Independent.
4: I'm not a cheat and never have been. I did not lie or mislead anyone about my achievements at the Olympics, the Europeans, or at any time throughout my entire career in swimming. Right now, I intend to take my case to the Sports Arbitration Court, where all the facts will be presented.
0: But the appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport was a bruising experience for Michelle, where the evidence against her was heard in public. Dr. Segura was asked why anybody would want to put alcohol into a urine sample. He said it would be an attempt to mask the presence of a banned substance. Her legal defence would also have to prove their theory that it was possible to tamper
3: with the containers her samples were stored in after they were sealed. There was a scenario put forward or a suggestion of what possibly happened um, that someone had tampered with, uh, somebody had tampered with the container Um containing the urine sample during transit uh, which opened up the question of like who would bother and then it was suggested that people had been out to get her apparently there was a site on, uh, on an internet site which again all this stuff is new at the time the internet was new we had just got it in the sunday tribune office um but there was an internet site where apparently if you boiled the container that the beaker of urine came in, you could actually pop the lid and then you could get it and tamper with it and put it back and put the lid back on without it displaying any evidence of tampering. And when she appealed uh, the FINA um, ban on her to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, one of the one of the things was she, she her, her legal team had to actually demonstrate how this might conceivably happen um, in laboratory conditions, and they tried, and they failed. Um, they could, they couldn't, they couldn't do it in a way that that left no evidence on the beaker.
0: Dr. Jordi Segura from the lab in Barcelona also introduced some more damning evidence.
3: The
5: game changer, the absolute game changer, was when they brought in the head of the Barcelona lab.
0: Tonight, Dr. Segura of the IOC-accredited lab in Barcelona that carried out analysis of the disputed January 10th, 1998 sample gave his evidence. During that, the lawyer for FINA, Jean-Pierre Morand, attempted to reintroduce claims that traces of a metabolic precursor of testosterone, that's namely a banned substance, were found in a separate analysis of the disputed January 10th, 1998 sample A. Now, this was vigorously opposed by De Bruyne's solicitor, Peter Lennon, who said it was an attempt to introduce new evidence into the case. The panel said it would be taken into reserve.
5: They weren't able to actually identify it as Andros and Dion at the time they had brought the Tampering charge. OK? It was in the case as it was presented to her a testosterone, it was presented as a testosterone precursor they weren't able to identify it at the time but subsequently they were able to identify it as andro and this then became part of if you want the lab's evidence in the hearing and that was really significant because the question was and i've got to hear uh, it was an interview that uh, it was an interview that uh, Eric gave to Cal Derwin in the title. So the front page of the title on February 14, 1999, which is the run up to uh, the cast. we're waiting on the cast hearing at this stage. And there's a picture of Michelle and Eric on the front page of the title. And there's an interview with Eric inside with Cal Dervan. On February 14th, 1999. And the quote over the front page photograph is Would somebody please God tell me why Michelle would put ethanol in a sample that did not contain a banned substance? Okay, now ethanol was the alcohol. Would somebody please God tell me why Michelle would put ethanol in a sample that did not contain a banned substance? And the answer came from Jordi Segura at the CAS hearing. It did contain a banned substance and a subsequent test contained a bad, bad substance, the same bad substance, and one just before that. So that was
0: it. Game over. The court of arbitration upheld the four-year ban, which effectively ended the
3: career of Michelle Smith, who was 29 at the time. The game was up then. She announced very, very soon after the, the CAS ruling, that day, I think, that she was retiring from from public life as well like you know she wouldn't be commenting on this at all and and just sort of she would be accepting there it was the end of the road because there was nowhere else to go after 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 Cass ruled but that was the end of it you know that that was that was the end of the story.
0: Michelle would not compete in the pool again and would return to university to study law embarking on a new career but the effects of her time at the pool are still being felt today. The doping controversy and the events around it would have personal and professional consequences far beyond Michelle and Eric. It cost friendships, careers, and took a personal toll on many of those involved in this story. Coming up in episode three, Tainted Gold, the Michelle Smith story.
2: In my heart, I, I do feel like I, I had the the best swim um, on that night in Atlanta and you know in the history books and on paper that's not the case but that's you know for me that way I, I have some peace
1: It did It did scar me in a sense in that it it became very very divisive between journalists like I wouldn't have had a civil word between myself and Paul Kimmich for 15 or 20 years after that
5: The people who are damaged were Michelle her family, her friends and the people who loved and admired her for what she was in 1992.
0: You've been listening to Tainted Gold. This was produced by Kieran Lennon and Shane Brennan with sound design from John Smith. Thanks to RTE for the use of archive audio. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.